If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Very familiar passage. And I think one that's appropriate for us to consider, especially as we approach our vacation Bible school, which is a primarily directed at, at reaching children. And so as we look at this passage, we can ask the question and stop for a moment and think about what does our, our Lord think of ministry to children? And as we look at what not only Jesus says in this passage, but we look at what Scripture says altogether, I think we may leave here with a new perspective or maybe even some commonly held views that we have of children's ministry may be challenged, especially when we look at the larger church culture today. And as we approach the scriptures and we consider this idea of ministry to children, does scripture actually address how to minister to children? What is the best way? And if scripture does address these things, then the next question is to ask is this, is Scripture sufficient to speak to us in the church in 2022? And I would say Scripture is authoritative. It doesn't matter what year it is or what the culture is. The Scripture is authoritative for all aspects of life and sufficient to guide us in how it is that we specifically minister to children. And as we look at this text, I want us to look at it through three different lenses, and that is first the desire of the parents, the desire of Jesus, and then the desire of the disciples. And when we conclude, we will look at the example of the children. So let us hear this word, and this is the word of God. In Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and bless them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of God, and what a wonderful picture of the sovereign Lord of the universe gathering these children into his arms. And as you begin this text, the first thing that we should see in contrast to that of the disciples is the parents. Notice what the desire of the parents is, is that they're bringing their children to Jesus. And the tense of that, bringing, is actually means that they kept bringing. This speaks of intention, this speaks of effort, that they are trying to get their children to Jesus. They are continually working at doing that, and they don't give up. And why do I say that they don't give up? Is because there was something there that was trying to prevent them from getting their children to Jesus, and it was the disciples. The parents are taking their, their children to Jesus, and there's the disciples giving the parents the stiff arm, don't bring those kids in here. 
And so let me just say this, is that that's an example that we ought to all have, is getting our children to Jesus regardless of the discouragement we may face in our effort to do that. And that was what was happening here, is that there was discouragement from bringing their children. If you think of this in today's terms, you think of all of the things that occupy our time and that we will use as, as, as something to pull us or pull our children away from sitting at the feet of Jesus. And we see these parents here were saying, no, even when we are being rebuked by Jesus' disciples, we're going to make every effort to get them there. And there's something we ought to note about it. It here says children. You know in the other parallel passages that it will say little children. And in Luke chapter 18 verse 15 where the parallel passage is, Luke identifies them as infants. These are infants being brought to Jesus, and the parents are doing their best to get them there. Now, the parents knew that the best course of life for their children was for their children to be blessed by Jesus. Now, this is specifically, we, we wonder, what does that mean to, for Jesus to bless them? This would have been an Old Testament uh, custom. You think of Abraham blessing his children. You think of Jacob blessing his children before he goes. Uh, that is that he would put his hand on them and he would pray for them and ask that the Lord would bless them. That's what they're bringing their children there for Jesus. And I want us to notice something here. It says, and they, and the they is not specifically identified, but we would assume that the they is the parents, and then you look at the them, where it says the disciples rebuked them, the them is in the masculine. So what does that indicate to us? Who specifically was bringing the children to Jesus? It's likely the fathers. The father's responsibility was to do this. And so they do this even though they face rebuke from the disciples. We look at our time today and we see fatherlessness is at an epidemic rate. You know, a lot of the things that we see that take place in society with a lot of the tragedies, there's almost always a common theme and that was a fatherless home. And the reality is, is that we live in a sin-fallen world. We live with the consequences of bad choices, but that does not change God's plan. That does not change what God has called us to. And when we see that in the church, guess what that gives us as a church an opportunity to do? To come around the fatherless and to minister to them, and to embrace them and encourage them. Or you think of in this situation where in a relationship there's only one spouse alone that intends church. 
Guess what that does as a church? It gives us an opportunity to encourage them and help them out because it is a reality of a sin-fallen world. And we as the church in that moment have an opportunity to surround them and minister to them. That we should never, and none of us would ever do what the disciples here did in rebuking these parents but you, you could think how we could be unwelcoming. We must be the most welcoming people on the face of the earth. And I would just challenge the fathers in this room. This gives us an example. This gives us an example to follow. This gives us an example to, to reach. And this also does teach us something important We're told in Titus that the older men are to disciple the younger men. And if you are practicing this in your life, guess what you get to do now? You get to be an example and disciple another man in this role. In other words, we do live in this sin-fallen world. We do have complicated things that arise, but then we get to be the church We get to be the hands and feet of Christ and help people through that. You know, the greatest thing that we can have as a desire, or the greatest desire a parent can have, is to bring their children to Jesus. And the greatest desire we can have as a church is for the children to be brought to Jesus and us to minister to them and the parent. We have to see that in this requires something of us, and I'll speak directly to the parents, speaking directly to myself, is this has to be done consistently and faithfully, even when society discourages you from doing it. May we have that desire to bring our children to Jesus. Now, I want you to notice the desire of Jesus And we see this come out in verses 14 all the way through verse 16. But when Jesus saw it, and so just for a second you can imagine the scene, verse 10 tells us that Jesus was in a house. So you can imagine that Jesus is in this house, and he doesn't see what's happening at the doorway The disciples are telling parents, don't come in here with your children because they're going to distract Jesus. And maybe Jesus doesn't quite see it, and Jesus looks up and sees it. Because it says that they kept bringing, and the tense of the verb for the rebuke is that they kept rebuking. So there's this ongoing struggle of these parents and the disciples, where they're bringing the children, and the disciples are saying no, and it keeps going on. And so Jesus notices it, and when he notices it, notice what it says. He was indignant. You don't see very often that phrase that Jesus was angry. You see it a number of times in Mark, but it's not just something that is normal in the course of day for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very vivid word is that he becomes angry at them and then he rebukes them for this. Now, when we see that he rebukes them 
for this, this also is a very strong action. He said, it says, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so what we see here is that Jesus in his anger calls them to rebuke after they had been rebuking these parents. And he specifically wants to, we see in verse 16, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. That's what Jesus wanted to do to these children. When he sees them, he has compassion upon them. Just as something that was in the heart of Christ. That when these children were before him, they weren't a distraction. And we have to know something about the first century. Is that by this point, children were seen as a distraction and a disruption. So we, we can't have them anywhere near Jesus. Sound familiar? And so rather than looking at what the Bible says about children... The disciples just simply bought into what society said you do. Keep children away from Jesus. Now, Jesus says, do not hinder them. That word hinder means withhold, it means to prevent, it means to restrict, and it comes in the form of an imperative. This is a command. So when Jesus says, do not hinder the children... We need to ask, how is it that the children are hindered? And then we've got to ask by implication, do we hinder our children? How do we hinder? Well, the context here tells us this, is by restricting them and not welcoming them. That's a specific context that Jesus is dealing with, is that by restricting the children, not welcoming the children, was actually a hindrance to them coming to Christ. Is that they would withhold from Him. Let me ask how we do this. Well, sometimes by allowing their natural curiosity, lack of life experience and knowledge to be an annoyance rather than an opportunity to shape them. Children have a natural curiosity. They ask a lot of questions. Sometimes they ask better questions than we do, don't they? And that's why we don't always have answers, is because they ask such good questions. Because of their natural curiosity, sometimes we want to dismiss them rather than looking at all of the chances that we have with children as actually an opportunity to shape them and to follow Christ. Well, how does the Scripture tell us that sometimes we will hinder children? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's a negative thing. Don't do this. Don't provoke them, but do this. And so if we're provoking them, and we can provoke children to anger in many different ways, the number one way is by inconsistent parenting. 
You want to you provoke a child, have no boundaries that they understand and know that if they cross those, there's a consequence for that. You just inconsistently raise a child, you will provoke them to anger. And then the second is the positive, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we see that if we're not doing those two things, inevitably what we are going to do is do what? Hinder them. We will hinder them from coming to Jesus. We'll hinder them also if we don't practice consistent discipline. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. You know, that's such a stark statement there. He who spares the rod, that is, does not discipline his son, actually, it says, hates his son. Why is that? Because here's the reality. If I don't discipline my children, whom I love, someone will. And they may not love them. Let me give you an example. I saw a protester in L.A. this last week that was tackled to the ground by Secret Service as she was standing there in the middle of a road protesting, and she was screaming and kicking on and flailing about on the floor as the officer tackled her to the ground. She looked like a child. She hadn't been disciplined in her life. Guess what? Someone disciplined her that has no love for her. When we don't have consistent discipline, we are training our children to live as if there is no God. But what Jesus deals with here, when he says, do not hinder them, it is, I think, specifically removing them from God's means of grace. And what is the means of grace? The church is the means of grace. The church is the means of grace. That is God's means of grace here is the gathering of the saint where we sit under the preaching of the word, the reading of scripture, the singing of the saints, and the prayers and taking, partaking of communion and baptism together. I think we all know that there is a problem in our society today with a declining church culture, and we will look at some statistics later. I think we all know that our world has drastically drastically changed. When I, when I got into ministry, I started off like many people did in youth ministry, and I could tell the way that I was being trained in youth ministry, something was wrong about it. But I, I, I just I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out what it was that was wrong with it. I wasn't smart enough to figure out why what I was being taught was wrong. But, but here was the basic premise of what I was being taught to do, is that you take, your, you take your youth group and you build this youth group here really strong and teach them about Jesus and to know the Bible, but, but you, you, don't, you have all these things here because they're not going to want to come over here to the worship service. And so you do these things that excite them, and then then they'll assimilate over here. The problem is, is that never happens. 
But I, I was trained that way and began to think that way. And then one day I was reading an, an article by Pastor Vodi Bakum where he said these words, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, there is no biblical justification to have age-segregated church. What do I mean by that? To have a group here, a group here, and a group here, and keeping them separated. There is no biblical justification for that. So that began to challenge me because I had been trained in this, and so many in the evangelical church today are trained in that. So if he says, wait, there's no biblical justification in it, but I've been trained in this, I know there's something wrong with it, but it can't be that. It can't be that which is wrong. So we have to ask the question, is there a biblical justification for removing children from worship? The answer is no. There's not. You can't find one verse, one example. Then we have to ask this question, if there is no biblical justification for removing children from worship, is there biblical justification actually for us to have the practice of keeping them in worship? You know, the Bible tells me I only need three witnesses to make a point. I'm going to give you 16. (laughs) And we're not even going to hit all of them. But you look at the participation of Passover in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is a sacrifice for the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Notice at the greatest celebration of, of worship that could take place in the year calendar of the Jewish people was that of Passover. Who was present? Who was present? Who did the text say was present? Look at chapter 13, verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This is at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The children were present. We go over to Deuteronomy. We find in chapter 16, In verse 11, at the Feast of Weeks, then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. At the Feast of Booths, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14, You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, and the fatherless. We see that with the teaching of the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your t- children. He goes on to say in verse 20, When your son asks you in time, which means they didn't understand what you were teaching them in verse 4, 
There's coming a time, though, when they will. Why? Because you've continually taught this and practiced this before them, that there will come a day when they will say, wait, why is it that we do these things? Why is it that we read this law? In Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses is told by God in verse 12, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones. And the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. Now hold on, when was the last time you sat through an exposition of Leviticus 15? And if we were to go through an exposition of Leviticus 15 right now, we would say, wow, that's really hard to understand. It would have been hard for those children to understand. They probably would not have fully gotten it. But nonetheless, what does God command them to do? To sit through the teaching of it. You notice in Joshua, in chapter 4, in the stones that they set up before going into over the Jordan, we see this in verse 5 of chapter 4. And Joshua said, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulders, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, and this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them, that is the children, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. You see that children were at the covenant renewal that Joshua brings in in Joshua chapter 8 and verse 34. And afterward, he read all the words of the law. Again, when was the last time you did a study in an assembly with children, something from Leviticus or Numbers? But yet that's what they are told to sit through. They're told to sit through that. Read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones. They sat through the whole entire reading of the law of Moses. In other words, they had to sit through that. I don't know that it was any more exciting for them than it is us. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. This is a time of national repentance. This is a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people. And they wept. Bitterly, not only after exile did the families gather together for the teaching of the Word of God, but the children were there. But what about sometimes when we teach these hard messages? Oh, look at Joel chapter 2, verse 2. Yet now, 
declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is a call to repentance. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders and gather the children, even nursing infants. Gather them. You know, one thing that we see in all these Old Testament passages, and I know if you're thinking, well, that's Old Testament. We don't base our worship off our Old Testament. Give me a second. We'll get there. There's one thing that we see in this that is a common theme, and it is this, that it is assumed that there is a lack of understanding of the children, that they will not understand necessarily the significance of all that is taking place, but that there will come a time through repetition, they will say, why do we do this? These things seem strange to us. Why do we listen to a guy sit up there and talk from the Bible? Why why is it that we, as a church, pass around bread and grape juice and drink it, and we say that that's some guy's body and some guy's blood? Why do we do that? Why do we sing these same songs and that we're all singing together, even the pastor who can't sing very well, but he's still singing there? Why, why do we gather and do that? Why do we dip a person under water every now and then, and then they come up and everyone's excited about that? Why, why do we do that, Mom? Why do we do that, Dad? Well, let me tell you about the exodus that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for us, son. Let me tell you about the gracious Heavenly Father that we have that sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sins. What an opportunity we would shortchange children if we removed them from that. It's interesting when you see Jesus feeding and teaching. It says this in Matthew's description in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women. And they were sitting there while Jesus is teaching. Jesus is healing them. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in in, in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. Where did a child come from? Did Jesus just, you know pop up a child out of nowhere? Or is it plausible that actually children were sitting there under the teaching of Christ as he would teach? You think about what we have already read in Ephesians, where we read in chapter 6, the instructions to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in the instruction of the Lord. Well, we also see in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What do we all know about epistles of the New Testament? They were to be read in the church. Who would then be hearing that instruction? The children sitting in church. That's why when you look at this, Paul writes in Ephesians, Wives, you do this. Who has to be present in order to hear that instruction? 
Then he goes on and he says, children, obey your parents. What do we have to assume about the children in order for them to follow that? He goes on to say, bondservants, do this. He tells the church, do this. It assumes something. You see that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20. In Titus chapter 2, again, we see the instruction. We see Peter instructs the young to be obedient to the eldership. I hope one thing that we see very clearly here is that there is no biblical precedence for separating the family during a time of worship, but there is every example of family-integrated worship from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. And it is assumed the one thing that we always are told, well, the children won't understand it. That's right. The Bible assumes that. The Bible knows that. But the Bible also assumes that it's part of their development. And that there comes a time where they say, why do we do these things? And we get to say, praise God, they have asked, why do we do this? And we can say, here's why we do this. But by removing him from that, it becomes a hindrance to their progress. And because of that, and maybe this might be shocking, this is why we then need to consider the desire of the disciples. Notice what happens. They're bringing the children. This is verse 13 of Mark chapter 10. They're bringing the children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuke them. As already mentioned, they they continually are rebuking these parents. And it's a social thing. They didn't want to be bothered and distracted. And what do we know about children? Children can disrupt and distract us. Right? That's, That's not a shock. But Jesus shows us very vividly that that fact that they can disrupt, that they can distract, is in no way a thing that should lead us to hamper or to hinder their presence. And Jesus himself has said he was indignant about it. But just apply that logic with me for a second. Of the disciples, this is the logic of the disciples. We can't have children near Jesus while he's teaching because they will be a distraction and they will be bothered by it. Apply that consistently across the board. What about the elderly saint that suffers from dementia and disrupts service? I've sat through that. Perhaps you have. How many, how many of you have, on accident came in the middle of the sermon, your phone rings? What about a coughing fit? Does that ever happen? Maybe stop to talk to someone? Maybe we should just have a room set aside for you know, everyone that sinuses are triggered by some sort of perfume. You think about the logic of that. 
Because it's a distraction, right? We're disrupted by it. So maybe, maybe we should just have in here. Okay, here's the new rule is that only if you can sit in here quietly, not move, don't, don't move your paper, because that might distract. If we were consistent, we would have to move in that direction, wouldn't we? But of course we wouldn't do that. No way. We're we, we, we blessed by the saint that would have dementia and her presence or his presence with us. We would be thankful for them that they were here with us. I'm not thankful for the phone, by the way. (laughs) You might say, but I'm distracted by it. Try preaching through it. But guess what? There's one thing about it is that child will grow up week in and week out knowing who their pastor is versus being separated from their pastor and having no interaction with them. They'll grow up knowing that you are their future brother and sister in Christ and they get to watch you sing. They get to see how you worship and they get to observe that and they get to grow up observing that in you. They get to see that you value this time. You know, that's why we actually created, by the way, because of that idea of distraction, that training room. We don't, we don't call it the cry room. We call it, and I didn't come up with the name, someone much smarter and creative, more creative than me calls it the training room. Why do we have the training room? So we can train the children to learn to sit through worship. And I think this ought to, as we look at what the disciples did, ought to challenge us and examine not only how we view children, but how we even approach worship ourselves. Because with children, more is caught than will be taught. Now, the other thing is, is that the desire of the disciples was to keep Jesus to themselves and just the adults in the room. We want to hear from, from Jesus and the children cannot understand. And we addressed that earlier in these earlier passages. They could not understand, nor could they understand the law of Moses when it was taught to them. And God commanded their presence to sit under it, even though he knows that they wouldn't understand it. So it's a fallacy to say that they won't understand, though, because we have to ask, what is it that they don't understand? Do they not understand the exposition of Scripture? Sure, maybe not parts of it. But to be completely frank with you, if you ask me what I preached about last week, I can't remember the exposition. What is it that we can't remember, they don't understand? What they do understand is that this is a time that's important that we value and they see us say, we're dedicated to that. They understand that. Let me ask you just a simple question. Who would learn a new language more quickly? A three-year-old or a 12-year-old? Three-year-old. Who would learn the language of worship quicker? A child that's been formed outside of it? Being entertained by Disney and entertained by the world and then brought to the church to be entertained? And by the way, we're poor at being entertainers. We don't do it well. And then saying, okay, now let's put him into the church service. Which child would actually be more equipped for worship? One that had been raised in it or the one that we pulled out from it and said, well, we're going to do things at their level. 
By the way, that's why we have an entire generation that goes to church based upon the entertainment value of the church service because they never got past youth group. According to George Barna, a child's worldview is shaped by the age of 13. It's only refined afterwards. So the best place to have our children is with us. The idea that we can initiate the children to church by means that do not resemble the actual church or by doing the opposite of what God has told us shows us is this will actually contribute to the dropout. Now, immediately when I say something like that, someone will say, but my experience is this. I had this experience. And I say, praise God for your experience. God saves through doing things the way he doesn't say to do them sometimes. Praise God for your experience, if your experience is the opposite of what I'm talking about. But your experience cannot trump God's Word, nor can your experience govern the church. It's not your church, it's not my church, it's God's church, and we are to do things as God has called us to do them. You apply that logic, though, of, well, my experience is this. Look, I've made a lot of poor choices in my life, and I've made mistakes in my life that have shaped me into the man I am today. So then, therefore, everyone should go out and try to make mistakes so that they'll be shaped into a Christian man later on. No. That'd be insane to suggest that. Our experience does not dictate what we do. We are told, do not hinder them. These were infants. They could not come to Jesus apart from their parents, and removing them from Jesus' presence was the actual hindrance that Jesus calls to attention. The children Jesus does not say are in hindrance, but rather he shows us that the disposition of removing them from his presence is the actual hindrance. So let me say, I believe that we are blessed, and that God's Word tells us we are blessed for the presence of children and all of their unique peculiarity and characteristics that they exhibit. Today, the vast majority of churches remove children from worship. And again, I alluded to this earlier, that we have to admit that there is a decline. Every mainline denomination is on the decline. Every single one is declining. Church memberships across the board have declined. According to a Gallup poll, in 1937, 73% of Americans were members of some sort of religious organization. And that's not even Protestant, just some sort of religious organization. Today, it's below 50%. Right now, there is a 66% dropout rate for youth from the church. What's the definition of insanity? In Barna, we are told that only 12% of youth pastors or children ministers hold a biblical world view. 12%. You would have to be crazy to think that you're going to take my children and put them under that statistic to learn God's word. 12% of youth pastors 
or children's ministers hold a biblical worldview. I think back when I was in youth ministry and I had a wonderful godly mentor that taught me the importance of the Word of God. And I look back on my theology and I go, oh, I should not have been teaching. The disciples presume that Jesus had better things to do and more important people to meet. Just consider the last hundred years of evangelism. What does it look like? Go outside the church, knock on doors, tent revival, decisionism by coming forward. That's been the big push of the evangelical churches is to do those things. And those aren't bad. Those aren't bad things. I'm not saying they're bad. But just imagine if the scenario had been, let's take all of our time or the majority of our time and energy and focus it in on the home first and foremost. Let me ask you, if we had done that for the last hundred years, would the church today look differently than what it looks like? I'd say, yeah. The greatest place where we can have revival is home. If we had just focused inwardly. Now I want to give us, to close this, is this, is the example of our children. Jesus says this, and it's a very difficult statement to understand. Truly, in verse 15, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now what does this mean? These were infants, and Jesus points to them as the example of what we must be in order to be saved. A lot of commentators will say that, well, it's the humility, uh, humbleness, uh, the being genuine, the trustworthiness of a child. But that cannot be what it means. Because that would mean that we have to be some sort of virtue in coming to Christ. That means we would be saved by some sort of work which means we could not be saved. What does it mean? We have to remember, again, they were infants. What do we know about infants? Is that they're helpless, they're dependent. We ourselves come to Christ with an empty hand. We bring nothing to Jesus. Jesus has everything that we need. And actually, the child that is fully dependent and helpless apart from their mama is the example that we are given in which we must come to Christ. What a beautiful reminder that every time we come together when we see infants there, we are reminded of our own helplessness before Christ, that we're sinners, that we have transgressed the law of God, and we are in desperate need of God's grace, and we are helpless. The children bring us that reminder every single time we gather. They show us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And I want us to see what Jesus does in verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We come to Christ. We bring nothing but our sins that are in need of forgiveness. Christ gives us his righteousness that we might be saved. And he takes us in his arms. And he blesses us.
on an example. Let me just give us a few points. Church, encourage young parents that they feel comfortable. Encourage them that if their child is a little bit loud, it's okay. We want them to be comfortable. We want to embrace them. We want to encourage them. And young parents, prepare your children for this time. Set aside time before you even come here and explain to them, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be worshiping the God of the heavens and the earth who created all things, who created you. You were fearfully and wonderfully made with a purpose, and we're going to worship him together as a family. And I want you to listen. Engage them, train them. Be consistent in how you discipline them. And church, again, get to know the kids. Get to know the kids. Know their names. Engage them. Speak with them. It can be difficult, but it's worth it. You'll be blessed by it. Parents, and I I, I say this just in general, You do not need a break from your kids during this time. You need a break from all of the other things that you can may may dedicate this time to your children. We need a break from the world so we can be with our children. We don't need a break from them. Let me just say this, is that we are in very strange times. And we might be quick to think, well, the future looks bleak, but it's not. It's not bleak. Jesus is going to continue building His church. Jesus is going to continue to protect His church. Let us be the means of building the church through the children that we have with us. Let us pray for them. Let us get to know them. Let us minister to them. And let them be our example of what it means to be a helpless babe in pure need of the grace of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect wisdom of your word. We thank you for your, the sufficiency of your word to guide us in these precious children that we have here. And we think of the children that will we'll have access to this next week. And what a wonderful opportunity it is for us to minister to them. We pray that, Father, if our hearts struggle with these truths of your word, that you would soften our hearts. We pray that our heart's desire would be to see the children come to know Jesus. And, Father, may we always be reminded that we are helpless babes before you, fully dependent upon you and in need of your constant grace. We cannot do these things, Father, apart from you. We cannot do this apart from a work of your Spirit in our hearts. We pray for unity. We pray for church growth. You you have told us that you will build the church, that the Lord Jesus will build his church. May you build it through the children that are in our midst and beyond. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.